It's a wonderful privilege for me to be um, standing here in front of you again. Again, uh, it's been a year since my first first time to preach, and uh, I think you know, uh, once a year preaching is uh, it's not that bad, <laughs> not that bad at all. You know, <laughs> I would like to thank the elders, um, Pastor Andy, for this uh, wonderful privilege. Thank you. Uh, but before we begin, let us uh, pray again. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all love uh, movies and books, right? Uh, For a movie or a book to be successful, one has to have a great plot, an outstanding characters, grand setting, and a glorious outcome. But uh, one cannot deny that having a strong or intense conflict usually often makes it memorable. The conflicts that we usually see are the good guys versus natural disasters, or the good guys having internal struggles. But uh, usually it's the good guys versus the bad guys. Plain and simple, vanilla. And when I say the villain or the bad guy's names, you'll probably know what movie or book they're at. Darth Vader, Star Wars, Lord Voldemort, Harry Potter, Thanos, The Avengers, about Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs, Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes. Captain Hook in Peter Pan, uh, Scar in Lion King, even Todd in Odd Squad, which is uh, one of my kids' favorite shows. These villains did make a lasting impression. And this is one of the moments in the book of Esther that I have the joy and the burden of introducing the villain, the bad guy, named Haman. I I titled this sermon, The Hatred That God's Enemy Gives. The Hatred That God's Enemy Gives. The main idea and also my intended response are, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil prowls like a lion, seeking someone to destroy, which is in 1 Peter 5.8. And this goes along with our overarching main idea for the book of Esther which is God's grace enables God's people to prosper and preserve God's kingdom. So what kind of hatred that God's enemy gives? First, it is an ancient and enduring hatred. We see in verse 1 that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman to be the head of the government like a prime minister, the second most powerful man after only the king himself. At the end of chapter 2, we might have thought that Mordecai should have been the one to be promoted because he basically was able to save the king's life out of an assassination attempt by the two cohorts. But he was rather overlooked. Haman was the one promoted. His throne was advanced by the king. Some commentators said that he bribed his way to it 
in which it's not contradicting to this character, as later we'll find out. Really, no, there is no qualifications given by Haman. And more so than this, we'll find and see throughout even the book of uh, Esther that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What is significant about Haman is that he is described as the Agagite. The Agagite. We have to dig a little bit of history here in the Bible. We'll do a Perry Mason or Nancy Drew or my favorite uh, detective, Hercule Poirot, to do some investigation. You know, Agag is the king of the Amalekites in the time of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord says to Saul, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote them to destruction. These are strong and frightening words from the Lord. In Deuteronomy 25, we found out why God was angry with the Amalekites. When the Israelites got out, just got out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, on the way to the Promised Land, the Amalekites were attacking and ambushing them, especially those who were lagging behind. And who are those who are usually lagging behind? The old, the weak, the women, the children. And in doing this, it says, they did not fear God. Therefore, the judgment is to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. We see this partially done by Joshua in Exodus 17 and by King David in 2 Samuel 1. We see also that King Hezekiah abolished most of the Amalekites, but there are still some that remained. Even to push this back further in Genesis, this ancient hatred started between Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, in which God, telling Rebekah in chapter 25, two nations in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Esau came out first. His lineage connecting to our story is as follows. Esau, Amalek, Agag, and Haman. Then Jacob's lineage connecting to our story is Jacob, Benjamin, Kish, Saul, and Mordecai. Even centuries later, this animosity between each other is still brewing. Saul clearly fails to remove the Amalekite threat and is himself removed from the throne for his failure to obey God. So now in the time of Esther, we have Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, again opposed by an Amalekite. This has been an ancient, age-old, enduring hatred that has its beginnings in Genesis and in Exodus. And this background story and historical lineage of their ancestors are the reason, is the reason why Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Notice Haman did not know at first that Mordecai was not bowing to him. It was the king's servants who told him this, which only suggests of Haman's arrogance and pride being blinded by the praise around him, not noticing 
and no, no one, and I'm noticing no one individually being full of himself. So the hatred that God's enemy gives is at first an ancient and enduring hatred. The second, it is a murderous hatred. It is a murderous hatred. So what happens when Haman found out that Mordecai was not bowing to him? First, he was filled with fury. He was enraged because he has a sensitive ego. In spite of all the accolades that he has, being second only to the king, we shall see that he was not satisfied at all. He feeds off the praise of people, and even one man will not honor him. He was infuriated, but it gets much worse. As soon as he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he was determined to kill not just him, but an entire Jewish population. He was determined to eradicate, to wipe out the entire covenant people of God. This is, as we think of it, an absurd and deranged overreaction. One man offends you and you assassinate the whole family, the whole clan. Crazy. It's crazy. But when we understand the roots of hostility, of anger, of murder, back to the beginnings of the Bible, it makes more sense. Cain killed Abel because his brother is more righteous than him. Lamech, a descendant of Cain, even has a poem that says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Practically, he was bragging of his murder and revenge, much worse than what Cain did. This is the downward spiral of humanity as sin entered into our hearts. And to examine this further, we have in this world cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual forces of evil that can only explain this murderous anger that cannot be quenched until every one of the people of God has been killed. Next, our third point, the kind of hatred that God's enemy gives is a godless or superstitious hatred. It is a godless or superstitious hatred. Even Haman himself is aware that there are unseen powers in the universe. He and his minions were casting lots, rolling dice, to find an appropriate time to kill the Jews. The pur is an old Babylonian word for dice, like the one found in casinos or the one we use in our board games, like Monopoly or Snakes and Ladders. This also comes from the word meaning lot or fate. They were, they were doing the poor in the first month of the year, and it just so happens that the lot fell on a day on the 12th month, basically giving Mordecai and Queen Esther a year to prepare in averting the evil plan. God indeed moves in a mysterious way, even in the rolling of the dice. We see this done in the context of faith, like when Joshua was allocating or dividing the promised land to the tribes of Israel, or when the disciples were choosing Judah's replacement, in which the lot fell on Matthias. But here, Haman was using it in superstitious ungodliness. Nevertheless, whether it is being used for good or evil, Proverbs, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This 
indeed has a right opportune time for the crisis to happen. The fourth point, the hatred that God's enemy gives is a deceitful and excessive hatred. It is a deceitful and excessive hatred. Haman in his report to King Asperus uses, like the serpent in the garden, persuasive deception. He started with the truth, then merges into half-truth, then ends with an outright lie. Let's examine this. First, the truth. There is a certain people scattered abroad in your kingdom. Yes, the Jews were indeed exiled in all provinces. Notice that he didn't even mention the Jews by name. It is always easier to hate a society if they remain just a vague, non-specific group. They can be the hounds from Baskerville or the headhunters in the jungles of, of, of Isabella for all we know. Vague, unclear, foggy. Then the half-truth. Their laws are different from those of every other people. That's right. God's people have a different, distinct laws. But they are not in a dangerous or threatening way. And now the outright lie. They do not keep the king's laws. Remember that Esther obeyed all the rules to the beauty pageant and even when called upon by the king. Also, Mordecai shows himself a law-abiding citizen that sits at the king's gate, the judicial place of the kingdom. Indeed, he showed his loyalty to the throne when he reported the assassination attempt of the king. Like all those consumed by godless hatred, Haman plays fast and furious with the truth. It has been said that lies and murders are cousins, going back to the devil who has been a murderer from the beginning and a father of lies. We see also that Haman not only holds a high position, second only to the king, but he's also a very rich and wealthy man. For him to offer the king or bribe the king 10,000 talents of silver to kickstart his evil plan, it is said that this bribe is equivalent to 15 million U.S. dollars at their time. Their time. Now, if you multiply it by years of inflation and other factors, it must have, you know, it should be billions and billions of dollars. Some commentators say it may have been $362 billion. This is how excessive this deceitful, lying Agagite was willing to spend to the eradication of the covenant people of God. So the king believed Haman's lies and gave his signet ring to him, which now gives Haman. Remember, he already has position and wealth. Now he has great authority to do as he wishes. Haman is now described not just the Agagite, but as the enemy of the Jews. The enemy of the Jews. It is hatred this hatred that defines him. The heart of all sin is opposition to God. He is ultimately remembered not by what he is, but by what he is against, the enemy of God's people. I have here uh, the Gragger. Yeah. <laughs> this is being used by the Jews when they read the book of Esther 
and celebrating Purim. Every time Haman's name is being mentioned, they make a loud noise, they use this dragger, they hiss, they stomp their feet, they want his name to be erased. As we mentioned earlier, they want to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Fifth and last point, the hatred that God's enemy gives is that it is a comprehensive and extensive hatred. It is a comprehensive and extensive hatred. Verses 12 to 14 emphasizes the comprehensive nature of this terrible decree, otherwise known as Haman's Edict. It was written by the king's secretaries in the script in each province, in every language of the empire. The orders were given to every kind of officials, the satraps, the governors. They were sealed by the king's ring, and the letters were sent by couriers. This is how much the enemy of God is willing to exhaust all resources, all means, all ways, all measure to carry out this wicked, evil plan. Observe the instruction of Haman's edict to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, to plunder their goods. This is eerie similar to Jesus' description of Satan as the thief that comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. This has to be done on the 13th day of the 12th month. Though it's not implied, this day happened to be the day before Passover, the time that the Jews remember and celebrate their great deliverance and freedom from Egypt's tyranny is the time Haman wants to unleash his hatred in evil scheme. This is a terrible, comprehensive, and extensive hatred that such a total judgment, a day of purging, was decreed against God's people. And at the end of the chapter, we see Haman and the king drinking, toasting on this wicked plan, leaving the city of Susa in confusion. Some say that this is almost what is happening in our nation's capital. The leaders in our government enacting laws and celebrating while leaving us, the common people, perplexed and bewildered. And what's the wonderful prayer by Andy? This is a call for us to vote. So if you guys haven't voted yet, um, please do so and let us continue praying for this election. This drinking and feasting by Haman and the king are also like an anti-feast to our Lord's Supper. While there are only two of them celebrating on their feast, the Lord's Supper is a communal gathering of people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Also, the purpose of their anti-feast is the evil celebration of the sacrifice of death of the Jews. While the Lord's Supper is celebrated and remembered as the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for many, not leaving us into confusion, but rather strengthening our convictions and beliefs in our Christian faith. So now, what are some observations and points of application that we can get from our story? Number one is uh, know your enemy. Know your enemy or uh, be aware of the battle. Be aware of the battle. Going back to my, my main day, we have to be alert, be vigilant. The devil is like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. In the Screwtape Letters, a novel by C.S. Lewis, wherein the story was about Screwtape, a senior demon, teaching his nephew demon, Wormwood, how to tempt man and undermine God. 
Screwtape advises the inexperienced Wormwood and says, It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Keeping things out. Brothers and sisters, the enemy's tactics are distraction and letting us forget that there is an ongoing battle out there. We have to stay vigilant. The more aware we are of our enemy, the better we are able to defend ourselves and use our offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, the Word of God. We have here in this world, in our nation, in our city, in our neighborhood, an underlying hatred for God that will express itself in hatred for His people. This is an ancient, murderous, godless, deceitful, and comprehensive hatred. At a greater extent, this hatred is even more sinister than the racial discrimination that is happening right here, right now. As bad and evil and wicked as prejudices, we can all attest to that. It is not absurd. It is not crazy. It may not be that obvious for some of us in which... If we are not seeing this or experiencing this animosity, we may need to examine ourselves. Jesus said that if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And also in the words of Apostle Paul, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The blatant signs that we see in the media, television, commercials, the internet and so on, have the propaganda of antagonism to our Christian values and lifestyle. The type of liberalism, of tolerance, of progressive and modern ideologies are putting this nation in its downward spiral. These ideologies even have infiltrated the church itself. The great majority of society has turned its back to the Christian moral values that helped the founding of this nation. At the time when I was growing up, I was in the Philippines. I'm sure you experienced this too here in the U.S. I'm used to seeing uh, people getting ready on Saturday night to go to church on Sunday. Nowadays, we see a lot of people getting ready on Saturday night to go fishing on Sunday or play golf or bike or watch sports event or go to the lake where they can be one with nature. At my workplace, there are some occasions where I'm being laughed at and ridiculed because of my Christian standpoint. A good friend of mine, let's just call him Ian, wrote in our Bible study reading this week, he wrote, he said, Many people from work and school have called me weird because I'm a devoted Christian, and when I ask them if they go to church, in Matthew 10, we are sheep among wolves. People will hate and persecute us, but whoever endures in the end will live, end quote. To a greater extent than, in a greater extent than this, we have our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church all around the world who are being oppressed and abused physically day after day. Their churches are being burned, and they are being displaced from their homes, torn apart from their families. We have to listen to them. We have to be aware of their struggles. We have to 
be inspired by their courage, in which today, today, November 1st, and the rest of this month is the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. We have to pray and support them. This is a call to arm. Remember, we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Know your enemy. Number two, take a stand. Take a stand. Just like Mordecai, we have to refuse to bow down to our enemy. I'm sure he was aware of the consequences that happened to Queen Vashti when she refused the king's command. Nevertheless, he took the stand. And of course, we have to look to Jesus, the greater Mordecai, being tempted by the devil in the desert. Jesus refused to bow down to the enemy. There comes a time when our convictions and our beliefs will be challenged. We have to count the cost. We have to take a stand for King Jesus. Number three and last, hold firmly the sovereignty of God. Hold firmly the sovereignty of God. We have to read the entire book of Esther to find out the glorious outcome. But what's encouraging and reassuring even in this chapter alone is that evil was only permitted to appoint. Evil was only permitted to appoint. Just imagine if the lot fell the next month or even the second month, not on the 12th month, I don't think Esther, Queen Esther and Mordecai will have enough time to avert this evil, wicked plan. Or what if the Persian army was the means that was used to carry out the executions? That would have been swift and deadly. We may have a different outcome to our story, you know. But even to this point, when we think that the forces of evil, of darkness are winning, our God is working behind the scenes. I like what Uncle Joel said last week, the fingerprint of God is indeed in every page, every page, I would say every page of our lives. The fingerprint of God is indeed in every page of our lives. Our God is committed in the salvation and preservation of his people right to the end, right to the end. The nations may rage, the people may plot in vain, and the kings and rulers coming together against the Lord's anointed. But God is still seated in his throne. Let me end with this uh, verse by Martin Luther. It was mentioned by Pastor Andy almost 501 years to this day, nailed the 95 thesis that sparked the Reformation we are indeed standing on the shoulder of, of a giant. We are sh standing on, on the shoulder of giants. He said on the song that we, we sang in the mighty fortress, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus. Let us pray.
Father, help us now to apply this word to our lives. I pray that we will not be blind by the spiritual battle that's going on. Pray that uh, we will take a stand and uh, know and embrace and hold firm, Lord God, your sovereignty over all and that you're committed in the protection and preservation of your people. We praise you and we thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.